As we prepare to open up God's Word together, I'd ask that you bow with me in the time of prayer. Our great God, who stands above this entire service, we pray that you, in your marvelous grace, through the power of your Spirit, would come and sanctify us through your Word. Your Word is truth. Your Son himself says, and we pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. We pray this with urgency and with attention and with eagerness for his coming. For as the song says, we will be like him when he comes. Amen. In the counseling world, there is this helpful tool sometimes used by biblical counselors to assess the truth of the problem, to figure out what is the ailment that this person before you is struggling with. It is called, and I kid you not, I've heard Steve himself use this, the magic wand. It's the magic wand. And and they would say to you, hey, if I had a magic wand that I could wave, and suddenly all of your problems would evaporate, uh, what would I remove? Or what would I add to your life? What do you need right now in your life, essentially, to have joy, to have happiness, to have contentment, to have satisfaction? What do you need in your life to experience God's peace? What do I need to take away? What do I need to add? Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. Pastor David, I know exactly what I would add. It would would fill my heart with joy, with happiness. My whole life would have satisfaction and purpose I would know God's peace this morning. All that you need to add is the doxology on the end of this service. (laughs) Don't get too excited. No. In all seriousness, what would it be? What would it be? What, What perhaps with one swing of the wand needs to be added to your life. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, man, if if I just had a a solid and trustworthy friendship, all would be well. If I just had a secure job with a stable income, all would be well. If I I just had a, a sturdy immune system, all would be well. If I could figure out how to get better sleep, all would be well. If I had more vacation time, all would be well. If I had more money in the bank, if I had more time in my day, if I had less time in my day, if if I could have all of my loved ones around me once again, If, if I could see my enemies crushed under my feet in judgment, perhaps some would say. If I could see that certain politician get elected, all would be well. If I could just succeed in one thing, just one thing in life, just one win, then I would have joy. Or maybe some of you, young ladies, are wishing. If that guy would just ask me out. Or, if that guy would just pop the question, we've been together for a while now. All would be well. Or maybe you're thinking about something that needs to be taken away. The presence of peace in your life would be by the absence of something. Or someone. A certain person perhaps causing contention in your life. Maybe a child. Maybe a whole handful of children. 
maybe some sort of physical or mental weakness or setback that you struggle with continually. Maybe some illness that never goes away. Maybe in the quiet of your heart you suggest to yourself, if I could just get rid of this marriage. If that bully would just leave town. If I could get rid of that ex, that stepdad, whatever. All would be well. I want to make a case for you this morning that God's word actually promises you peace and joy, satisfaction, even contentment with the addition of one thing in your life. And I will answer what that one thing is, of course, later at the end of this message because I want you to listen. But we'll get back to that magic wand. But until then, let me just suggest this. Perhaps all of those problems or those things you do not have in your life are actually God's means for some greater good in your life. Perhaps those problems or or those things you lack even are, are God's means of grace to bring about something in your life. Maybe God is using this to sanctify you. Our passage, you can turn to it. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. It's one of Paul's benedictions that we see in the Bible. Many of Paul's letters end with such benedictions like these. And I'm always very intrigued by benedictions. They seem to be a response of prayer and praise to God. They seem to be responding to all that the writer has already said in his letter in almost a prayer and a, and a, and a hope-filled determination in God that God will bring these things to pass. We have hope in God. And, and even though we've been working through whatever letter we're in, we, we feel the urgency of application that we need to pursue. Paul ends the letter in a hopeful, triumphant note because he ends the letter in who God is and what God is up to even right now. And that's where we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians 5, in Paul's benediction. This letter actually has two benedictions in it. One is at the very end of 1 Thessalonians 3, and then the final one is at the very end of the letter here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. We'll just deal with the second one for now. Paul writes this after writing to the Thessalonian church. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. What a great, what a great testimony of our God. Once again, this is the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and it's, it's a certain note of triumph and hope in God. May God, Paul prays over the Thessalonians, may our God himself sanctify you completely, entirely. This is the hope and prayer of of every ministry and every pastor and everyone who seeks to do spiritual good for another person. May God sanctify you entirely. May He use my efforts, yes, but ultimately it is the Lord. It is the Spirit of our God by the Word of our God that will do it. What a hope we have in ministry. What a joy and what a confidence we can have in these things. This morning, I want to unpack this idea of sanctification, and I want to use four words to unpack sanctification here. Let's look this morning at the urgency of sanctification, the aim of sanctification, the orientation of sanctification, and then finally, the power of sanctification. Let's let's unpack this idea of sanctification in these terms. 
First off, let us examine the urgency of our sanctification. The urgency of our sanctification. Now, just real quick, before we really get to that, just consider the, the background of this letter. If you've ever read 1 Thessalonians before, you probably already know the background of this letter. It is an interesting background for sure. The year is somewhere between AD 50 and AD 51. In your, in your historical book of Acts, you see this between the chapters of Acts 17 and Acts 18. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, has just been driven out of the city of Thessalonica by angry and jealous Jews, and he was even chased by them in their zeal 45 miles all the way to Berea. These were motivated antagonists. And and this wasn't in the day of jets or cars. This is walking. These are motivated enemies. How will this church do with such motivated enemies? Finally, Paul escapes their clutches when he arrives in Athens. And then finally in Corinth, which if you've done your work in the Bible, you know, was no pastoral retreat center for suffering and you know, abused pastors. It was the hardest church he had to deal with. This was Paul in Corinth. But from, from here, from Athens and then Corinth, we see his concern for this fledgling church. He is willing to be left alone by himself after undergoing such resistance to ministry and being in such a hard place of ministry. He is willing to be left alone so that his trusty sidekick, Timothy, can go back to Thessalonica and see how they are doing. In other words, his concern was so great for this young church that he was willing to risk anything to make sure they were doing okay. And then you see in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, upon Timothy's return from Thessalonica, Paul is delighted to learn that they have not only survived Satan's onslaughts, they are flourishing spiritually. And how does the Apostle Paul now respond in this letter back to them? He responds with love. He responds with affection. He responds with thankfulness for the work of God that has so genuinely been proven in their lives and in their hearts. Truly God has been working among you. Truly God has called you. Truly my affection for you is is shown also by my actions. He responds in affection, in love, in thankfulness for them, but he also responds with urgency. Doesn't he? He responds with urgency for their spiritual good. Matter of fact, you could divide up 1 Thessalonians in this way, in in two parts, and just to be totally transparent with you, I stole this outline from a seminary professor who likely stole it from someone else, so we're all transparent here. Two parts, Thessalonians is broken up into two parts. The first one is basically chapter 1 through 3, and this is Paul's thankfulness and concern for the church in light of his absence. That's the first three chapters, thankfulness and and concern for the church in in light of his absence. And then 4 through 5, we see Paul's urgency and admonishment for the church, but in light of Christ's imminence. So the first half of the letter, because I'm gone, I have love and affection for you, but his urgency and his admonition for the church, his commands for the church, are all in light of Christ's imminence. His coming, Christ could be coming at any moment. That's why we have urgency together. Now think about this. If you were in Paul's shoes, and you knew what you knew about this church, and all they've gone through, what would you most want them to have? Well, what would you want to be in their life? What would you say to yourself, if this church could have this one thing? I would be thrilled. I'd be thankful to God. I'd be rejoicing in His work. What would you say? Better carpets? Air conditioning? A bigger building? Converts? 
wisdom, pastoral leadership, oh, what would it be? What would you eagerly seek for in them with urgency, with, with pastoral, with, with fatherly desire? What would you ask for of them and what would you ask for of God? What does Paul ask for? Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4. What is his urgency? He says in 4.1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you have received from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, For this is the will of God. For you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. What does Paul want for them? What does Paul pray for them? Their sanctification. And why does he want these things? Because the Lord is coming soon. Because of Christ's imminence. He could be coming at any moment. Matter of fact, look at chapter 5, verse 2. You yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us for wrath, but to, uh, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Be sanctified, because he is coming soon. That is what Paul wants for them. And, and notice the urgency that he expresses. Let's define our terms, um, sanctification or to sanctify, as we see here in our passage in verse 23 of chapter 5. May, God, may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. To, to sanctify someone means to set them apart, to devote them to God. And sanctification is, is just a, an extension of that. It is, it is God's work in and for his people to set them apart from sin and unto holiness. Sanctification is the work of God in and for his people to set them apart from sin and unto holiness. The process it is uh, by which God makes you holy so that you can enjoy fellowship with him and enjoy fellowship with his people. It says in 1 John 1, 6-7, if we say that we have fellowship with him and, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Sanctification. But let's unpack that just a little bit more. The Bible has a lot to say about sanctification. Let's do a quick theology of sanctification. It doesn't actually mean the same thing whenever it says sanctification in the Bible. The, the Bible speaks of you and your sanctification in three different tenses. Three different tenses. You are sanctified in the past, in the present, and in the future. First off, notice the Bible talks about you have been sanctified. It, it talks about a past work that has a present ongoing result. It, it, it talks about sanctification in, in terms of your position in Christ. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Romans 1.7, for example, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or Ephesians 1.1, to all the saints, those people that are sanctified, set apart, to all the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. There, there is a sense when the Bible talks about sanctification in which it's saying you have already been sanctified. You have been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been set apart from your sin. And you've been put into Christ Jesus. How are you made positionally sanctified? Hebrews 10.10 tells us, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering he has perfected, he has sanctified for all time those who are being sanctified. You have been sanctified and you are being sanctified. What a glorious truth. What a glorious thought you are right now, positionally, not because of anything you've done in righteousness, because of who you are in Christ and where you stand, you are positionally right now a saint in Christ, set apart. You, even at your age, even after the week you had, even after the things you've done, are a saint. You've been set apart, you've been perfected. In Christ Jesus. That word saint is, is often used by the Roman Catholics, right? To refer to really, really good people who've lived a really, really long time and now in eternity have been dubbed saints. But that's not how the Bible uses the term saints. It's not just the best of the best. It's everybody. It's everybody who is in Christ is referred to as a saint. The Apostle Paul even refers to the Corinthians as saints. What? Reminds me of my dad. You never met him. But let me assure you that he was even more interesting than me. It was humanly impossible for him to be boring when talking about the Bible. It was an incredible experience to be raised by a father like him. But I remember sometimes in the mornings when we were talking and reading the Bible together, he would start to debate, not me, not anybody else, but to d debate this invisible uh, Roman Catholic at the other end of the table. Very memorable experience. And he would say, oh, Why? Why is Paul writing to all the cemeteries in Ephesus? Why is he writing to the cemeteries in Rome? He's not. He's writing to people. Imperfect, yes, but people in the church loved by Christ and sanctified by his once for all sacrifice for sin. That's who you are. You're a saint. Sainthood is not some distant future achievement for the very best. It's the positional joy of every single believer who truly believes. In Christ, we are sanctified. And as Ephesians 2.10 would say, uh, because we are in Christ, we are also devoted to good works. Uh, but these works don't cause us to achieve sainthood it's a result of who we are it's it's a result of our position as holy and blameless you, you live a holy life because you already are holy in a sense you live a holy life with urgency in Christ Jesus because you have received the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. Matter of fact, in Christ Jesus, you are made worthy to receive the Holy Spirit so that you can live out the Christian life. 
Without Jesus, without positional sanctification, you can do nothing. That's why you must be found in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone, or no good works will come from your life. But you must first be sanctified positionally in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, such positional holiness does cry for urgency though, doesn't it? Urgency. I want to put off the remainders of my sin because of who I am in Christ Jesus. But there are still two other tenses that the Bible talks about. Also, it talks about our sanctification in a future sense. In, in a future sense, you, you also will be sanctified. And not just you have been, but you, you will be in the future sanctified. This is talking about perfection. You will be perfectly separated from sin. This is referring to our glorification when we experience sanctification, when we no longer experience the presence of sin. What a thought. It's almost incomprehensible to think about life without sin. But we will one day perfectly experience a life separated from sin. In the future, Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says this, If our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His working through which He is able to even subject all things to Himself. You say to yourself, that is an inconceivable state. Yes. But the one who will bring you into that state does so with the power that brings all things in subjection to Himself. Believe in God, not in yourself. Take heart, saint. You are not the saint that you will be. There is a future, glorious, experiential sanctification that you will, in the future, enjoy. When you no longer know the presence of sin in your body, when you will be perfectly sanctified, it is a glorious thought. And doesn't that create urgency? I want that more and more. The closer I get to that day, the more I want that. I want to be separate from my sin and functioning as my God and Savior has called me to do. As a matter of fact, the true believer can't stand their ongoing sin. They can't wait for it to be gone. 1 John 1.3 says this, Beloved, we are now children of God. And it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And here's a glorious thought, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him actually purifies himself just as he is pure. The longer you look at Christ, the more purification you see in your life. A true, genuine believer can't stand their sin because they look at their Savior and long for His coming. But that's the future tense of our sanctification. The Bible also refers to our sanctification in a third tense, and that's in a present, progressive, ongoing, continual sense. It's not just that you have been sanctified, and it's not just that you will be sanctified. It's also that you are being sanctified. The Bible describes our current Christian life as a present, progressive, ongoing, imperfect, continual, moving forward towards Christ-likeness. And it's an important reminder that we always need in this life. You will not be perfect in your sanctification this side of glory. Even your final day, your best day, will be an imperfect day. 
on this side of sanctification future. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Or 1 John 1.7-9 says this, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, that's a present ongoing sense of saying we have no sin, we actually deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. But if we confess our sins, that's once again a present ongoing sense, he, Jesus, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the reality of the Christian life. Continually confessing our sin to Christ and finding our sin forgiven in His blood and finding our lives even more and more, image by image, sanctified progressively in this life. Jesus Himself says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth and then watch it Your word is truth, he says. Sanctification comes by the instrument of our God's word to us. Progressively, ongoing, in the present. This is a precious truth, though, is it not? Especially if you're saints. I am not where I should be. And I should not be deceived about who I am and what kind of struggle I have right now. But it also brings a real urgency to our life, does it not? I love 1 John. It provides great assurance through the reality of sin, but even greater, the reality of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says in, once again, 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is manifested, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. You you have been made holy by the blood of Christ. You presently have a holy citizenship in heaven that's future, but you, you still have this urgency. Christ is coming soon, you say, and I want to dress myself for his arrival so that I am not ashamed by his coming. True believers long for this day. Matter of fact, if you're a true believer, you long for this day, and you long for it, to come to you with joy and with gladness and not shame and fear. But you can have joy and gladness in this day through sanctification continuing in your life. If it's not, all you have for this day is anxiety and worry and concern. Matter of fact, we read it already. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as of yet what we will be, but we know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. This is urgency motivated by all the tenses of sanctification. And this, my friends, is the urgency that we see here in Paul's letter. Urgency for Christ's coming, to be found in him, to to put on his will, To say, I know what my Savior wants to find me busy doing when He comes, and I eagerly, urgently seek to do that. This is the urgency of Paul's letter. And, if you've ever read 1 Thessalonians before, as Paul gets closer and closer to the end, what happens? 
He has more and more urgency. As he gets closer and closer to the end, he begins to spit out exhortation after exhortation with increasing speed and quickness. By the, by the end, you can see right above our passage, like verses 16 or 19, he's, he's barely completing sentences. Our pastor Steve calls this curbside urgency. You know the feeling, you're dropping your kid off for school, college, they're about to go off into the great world all by themselves. And as the door is shutting, you suddenly have this urgency to tell them just a few more things. Do good in your classes, remember to brush your teeth, go to bed by 10, even though that's humanly impossible in college. Urgency, and you begin to say more and more things as you're driving away because you have parental love and urgency for them. This is a critical moment. And this is what we see in Paul here. He has an urgency for them, and we we see him bring this back when he even concludes his letter in this benediction in verse 23. May the God of peace do this. May he do this. May he sanctify you entirely for his coming. But that brings up another word that we will used to unpack sanctification. Let's talk about the aim of our sanctification. The aim of God's sanctification in us. Where does this urgency focus on us? Verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame. God's sanctification is on you and you in your entirety. Everyone who has been made a saint positionally is, is called to holy, progressive sanctification with urgency and the whole of them is called for. And, and notice, how, how much of you is God after? God is after all of you. Uh, Notice LSB, sanctify you entirely. ESV has sanctify you completely. King James has uh, holy. NIV has may our God sanctify you through and through. The idea is of, of totality all the way. All the way. May God sanctify you through and through. God's desire, God's aim in your sanctification is all of you. Is the whole of you. Every part of you. And and notice just the emphasis. May your soul and may your spirit and may your body be sanctified. Striking to me how relevant the Bible becomes. Because if if you think about this from kind of the background that Paul was writing in, I I want to suggest to you that the reference here to the body is, is, is very striking. Because you see, ancient Greeks had this mindset about the body, that it was kind of a, a side thing, that it wasn't as important as your spirit. It, it wasn't as important as what was inside you, it, just the body. You'll do away with this soon enough. You'll be liberated from your body. It doesn't matter what you do in your body. It doesn't matter what happens to your body. What, what really matters is your spirit, in a sense, and it, is, it was something that the enlightened longed to be rid of and free of. And if you ask me, that sounds a lot like today. You should do anything to your body if it doesn't match with what's going on in your spirit. It can be chopped up, reversed, changed. But what's really, what, what really matters is just your spirit. God doesn't really care about your body. Maybe that was a mistake. But notice, Paul says God is is after your spirit and your body. And he has a purpose in his glory for all of it. Matter of fact, the biblical view upholds a very high view of the body, even in a sin-cursed world. It is not something between you and your greater fulfillment You were created by God with a body to glorify Him with your body. And through sanctification, you grow to glorify Him in your body, even in an imperfect state like we live in today. 
But God is after the sanctification of your body, its desires, its passions. God wants to sanctify the whole of you, glorify the whole of you, and in a future day, through a glorified body, enjoy perfect fellowship together with you and the saints. Your body matters, and God is after all of you. But real quick, how much of you is he after? Uh, Maybe you weren't asking this question, but I'm going to ask it because you can't go through this passage without referencing this. Are, are, are you two people, or are you two things, or are you three things? Your, your soul, your spirit, and your body, is that three, or is that two? Are you, are you three things, or are you immaterial and material? There, there's two views on this, and maybe you've heard it before, but if you haven't, I'll just kind of bring you up to speed on the two views and share with you my view, which is the biblical view, which is what every pastor says. There you could be, you could hold a trichotomist view of man, that essentially mankind is three parts. And some people would point to this passage and, and one other passage in Hebrews 4.12 as suggesting that there's a division somehow in you between the soul and the spirit in how the Bible understands the person. The common idea sometimes that's proposed by this camp is that the soul of you is, is the part of you that relates to other humans, other human souls, and, and the spirit of you is the thing that relates to God trichotomist view. Well, there's also the dichotomist view, which essentially is saying you are just two parts, material and immaterial. And, and by the way, I think this is more in keeping with the Bible's description of you. I would say soul and spirit are used when they're used together to kind of, like here, kind of add emphasis through similarities. They're, they're parallel terms that emphasize something. Matter of fact, when the Bible sometimes talks about people, it uses the, the ideas of soul and spirit interchangeably. It's, it's hard for me to see that there is a hard and fast separation between your soul and your spirit. For, for example, saints in heaven are viewed, according to Hebrews 12, 23, as spirits made righteous. But also, according to Revelation 6, 9, they're also seen as souls awaiting future bodies. Or Jesus himself, when he's referring to his inner person, his inner being, refers to my soul, but then also my spirit. And it doesn't seem like there is a distinction being made in those passages. And, and some people would, of course, point to Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What's going on there? Perhaps... The Bible is using two parallel terms there that refer to essentially the same part of you to emphasize the penetrating power of God's word. It divides the indivisible. It cuts to the heart. This is what I think is actually happening here. Scripture is packing synonyms together to emphasize something in its entirety. We've heard the Lord Jesus himself say, you should follow the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. It seems to emphasize everything. And sometimes Jesus even says, with all your might and your strength. It's emphasizing the entirety of you. And I would suggest that that's what Paul is describing here. You, all of you, emphasized God's aim in sanctification is your entire body, your entire will, your desires, your passions, your affections. God desires all of you. That is what God aims at in sanctification. But let's look at another word to unpack sanctification. Let's look at the, the orientation of sanctification according to 1 Thessalonians five twenty three and 24. What, are the, what is it that, that motivates, that drives, that energizes sanctification in us, in God's people? See the second half of verse 23. May he preserve you complete and without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ's return is the orientation that drives our sanctification. Matter of fact, Christ's return is the constant pivot of this letter. He's constantly orienting us around Christ's return because he constantly wants to have the Thessalonians filled with urgency for his coming in their entire being because their orientation is constantly fixed on the return of Christ Jesus for them. For example, if you turn over to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus' coming is a time of deliverance. Paul shares with them some of their own testimony in, in verse 9, talking about the Gentiles. They, they've seen the Thessalonians and their transformation, and he says, they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had from you and how you turned to God from idols. This is actually other churches. How, how They've reported to you how you have turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who, what, rescues us from the wrath to come. Christ's coming is a time of deliverance from the idolaters who rebel against Christ and against God and who reject and persecute His people. Christ's coming is deliverance. But then also we see in chapter 2.19, Christ's coming is also a, a time of boasting for God's people particularly the people who have given their lives to minister to the church. Paul says this, Who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Christ's coming is a time of boasting for those who have given themselves towards him and his kingdom. Matter of fact, I love this. Paul's constant mindset would be a good mindset for us to have as well. What do I want to be caught doing at his coming? What do I want to be found busy doing when the Lord Jesus returns? I want to be caught busy working for him and for his glory so that that time is more and more a time of joy, a time of boasting, and a time of crown. Right? That should be our mindset too. What do you want to be caught doing when Christ returns? It can be a time of boasting, but it can be a time of great regret. But we also see in chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus' coming is also a time of beautiful reunion. Chapter 3, verse 13. I'll actually read his whole benediction here. Notice this in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Christ's coming is a time of reunion, glorious reunion, when we will finally see one another again. It'll be one of those best kinds of reunions. The kinds of reunions that are made sweeter by a common love, common desire, and sweeter even by the distance that separates us. It won't be like one of those reunions that I had to endure in my childhood where the only thing that I had in common with these other people that I had to share the entire day with was the last name of some distant uncle. No, it's a time of reunion with everyone you miss and everyone you want to be with 
and everyone who shares a common love for Christ. And even those who you don't know presently, you will instantly be knit together with because of the common love and joy that you have in Christ Jesus. That's the best kind of reunion. All together, all at once, at Christ's coming. Beautiful reunion with past saints. But the best part isn't even that. The best part of our anticipation and orientation for Christ's coming is seen in chapter 4, 15, and 18 because Jesus' coming is seen as a time, the start of Christ's continual presence with you, His people. Christ will be with us always. Uh, verse 17, then, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. Uh, 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. You are going to be with the Lord forever. Think about that. Never to be without Him again. To enjoy His complete and perfect leadership continually. To enjoy His complete sufficiently, sufficiency. To enjoy His joy. To enjoy His love in its completeness, in its presence, in its perfection. Continually. And by the way, this is not just you and Jesus on a desert island somewhere enjoying each other. That's not the picture that you see here. No, it's you and Jesus with the whole of the redeemed. Jesus is king of the earth, and yet at the same time, Jesus is also promised to be personally present, closely, permanently, perhaps through the presence of his spirit, powerfully in a new way that we haven't even experienced yet, forever. Continually. This orienting focus fuels the aim of our sanctification and the urgency of our sanctification in our whole being, doesn't it? That's worth living for. That's worth living with urgency for. You should live and work for that day. Side question, what comes between you and your sanctification? What obstacles or hindrances do you have in your life of your sanctification? Can I suggest one big one? It is whatever hinders your view and obstructs your vision of that future day. It is whatever in your life causes you to orient yourself around this time and this life and saying, this is more important than that time. Perhaps it is ignorance of Christ's coming that hinders your view. But in, in better likelihood, it is sin that hinders and obstructs and cuts off your urgency. Because it focuses you on the present. So once again, the, the next time, the next time you are struggling as a believer, struggling with a fellow believer, struggling for joy in fellowship, struggling for quick and obedient, uh, uh, instant obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, the next time you are struggling in your sanctification, ask yourself the question, what do I want to be doing when Jesus arrives? Do I really want to be caught like this? Focusing on this? Orienting my life around this? Or do I want to seek that? Do I want to orient my life and my heart and my mind, all of me, 
around that. But this brings us to our final key word. And this is really just the whole sermon. This is really the reason I wanted to preach to you today. And all of that was just an introduction. How does all of this come to be? What are our assurances that this could ever happen? Does does your uh, sanctification work because of your mindset, because of your determination, because of your power, because of your strength? This is where we come to the most blessed thing in the Bible, the power of our sanctification. This is where the title comes, the the hope in our God, the hope that is found in God's power for our complete sanctification. Here, at the end of this letter, which is constantly, frequently pointing towards end-time hope and the urgency of our sanctification. Here at the end, Paul lets out a blessed benediction of hope that is filled with prayer and praise of our God that gives us great assurance in His power in sanctification. Let me just connect the dots. We know what God's will is. God's will is our sanctification, right? That we are to be set free, set apart from sin. We are set apart positionally. We are being set apart progressively. We will be futurely set apart experientially. And we also know God's will. It is even today, progressively, that we are set on holy things, His kinds of things. And we know that God is after all of us. He wants us to be sanctified in our body, in our minds, in our wills, in every part of us. God's aim is on our whole being. And this is a very daunting thing to hear, to hear God's will, isn't it? But take heart. Take heart. Because God is also the great instrument of bringing His will to pass. Who desires all of this of you? Verse 23. The God of peace Himself, may He sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved by Him, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who also promises to make all of this thing come to pass? Verse 23, God Himself. God Himself. Take courage. This is, this is not something He simply calls you on your own to do. This is not something He entrusts to a trusty guardian angel. This is not something that you require a, a pastor to bring about in your life. It is ultimately on the shoulders of God Himself. Is God Himself, through the powerful presence of His Spirit, through the Word of God in your inner being that will bring this to pass. And I love this. Verse 24, notice, it is also God Himself who is faithful to do this as well. Connect the dots. This is God's will. This is God's determined faithfulness as well. He will surely do it, Paul says. That's the God who is working, the the God who is faithful, who will surely bring it to pass. Your sanctification in its entirety is not dependent on you or yourself, but entirely dependent on a God who is known by one word, faithful. Reminds me of Romans 8.30. 
Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That verse is extraordinary, for one, because it's all written in the past tense. Already done. Your sanctification, because God is determined to sanctify you, is as good as done. What is required of you? Dependent obedience. Hoping obedience. Trusting obedience. But you can do all that because faithful is He who calls you. We surely know God's will for our life. But do you realize what a blessed thing it is to know God's will for your life? Regardless of how immature your faith may seem, when you realize that you know God's will for your life, when you know God's commands for you, you also know what He will enable you to do by the power of His Word and the power of His Spirit within you. Whenever you know God's will, you know God's power and enablement in your life. This is actually very transforming to me. If I was to share with you what perhaps God has done in my life the most in the last six years of ministering here, it has been this increasing persuasion that God's will stated brings God's resources in my life. This is what I want to do as a pastor. Communicate to you both God's will and God's surety in resources to bring about His will. It's life transforming. This is my conviction in dealing with anxiety, in worry, in doubt. This is my conviction in dealing with pornography and lust with students. If you know God's will, you also know that God will bring it to pass through the power of His Spirit. God can help you. You don't have to live the rest of your life wallowing in sin, defeated by sin. You can live the rest of your life in joyful confidence in the provisions that God provides for His people in their sanctification. When you know God's will, you rejoice. When you know God's will, you are glad. Because ultimately, the God who wants your sanctification is able to bring it to pass. What a glorious hope. That brings us to our conclusion. And I bring up that weird magic wand again. And you all know what I'm going to say. But what do you need most in your life right now? What will bring you joy? What will bring you satisfaction? What will bring you happiness even? What will bring you this great thing called peace? According to the Bible. Regardless of your situation, what should you be continually pursuing in your life? My answer, and I'm convinced it's God's answer, your sanctification. Sanctification should be your goal. It's all you'll care about when Christ's return comes, your sanctification. It's what God is most concerned about in your life right now and how he providentially moves you through life, not your comfort, but your sanctification. In the end, this is the reason why Christ died for you, not your comfort, but your sanctification. This is actually the very picture that we have in the Bible of God's mercy and love, your sanctification. And what is the result of all God's sanctification in your life? Peace. You will know peace when you know sanctification. Even if it's in imperfect degree, progressively, you will know peace. 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1 says this. 
Paul says this to the Thessalonians. Grace to you and peace. Right there, I would understand that peace is the result of grace to you. Sanctification in you. The the result of receiving God's mercy and God's grace is peace. And we see at the very end of the letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, who, who do we see God as in all of this? He is the God of peace. The God who is characterized by peace, but perhaps better taken, the God who produces peace. Peace comes into your life when sanctification comes into your life. And realize this. Realize this. All of those troubles, all of those things that you think, if I could just get rid of that or just add this, all of those might actually be God's instruments in your life to bring about sanctification and to actually bring you to true and lasting peace. Sanctification is peace. But this is not for everyone. This joy and confidence is only for those who are in Christ. It's only for those who have humbled their will before God. It's only for those who have repented, acknowledged and repented of their sins before God. And it's only for those who come to Christ in faith for His righteousness to be given to them. Those are the only ones who know true peace. Without Christ, you will find no peace. Without Christ, this life is the closest thing you will get to peace. And then you will begin to experience something called everlasting torment. Everlasting conflict. Everlasting trouble. Everlasting strife. Or to make up a word, everlasting unpeace. That will be your existence. But in Christ, every pain, every sorrow are God's gracious means for peace. For peace. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we come to you rejoicing in the truth of your word and begging that you would help us to make it more and more become a part of our life. We even thank you for the conflicts in our life. We thank you for the troubles in our life because we know that they are your instruments to bring about sanctification and your instruments to bring about peace. Help us to see, help us to believe, and help us to obey. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.